So our scripture today is going to come out of the book of Psalms. And uh, there's something about the book of Psalms. You probably, I'm going to guess, and I'm just, uh, again, I'm, I'm guessing here. Y'all probably have not heard during your lifetimes a lot of sermons preached from the book of Psalms. Why is that? As a matter of fact, this is probably only the third or fourth time I've ever preached a sermon on the book out of the book of Psalms. One of the reasons for that is that Psalms is essentially less of a theological book, although there's certainly theology in there, and there's certainly ways that we can apply a lot of the stuff that we read in Psalms to our lives, but basically Psalms is a prayer book. It's 150 books of different prayers. A lot of them are attributed to uh, King David, uh, but we also know that King David did not write all of the Psalms, but that's what they are. They are, again, a book of prayers uh, that were written to God, and uh, it's always kind of like a Jewish prayer book, really. It would have been the prayer book that Christ himself would have used, so it's very difficult to preach something that is basically the thoughts of the thoughts of other people. But the other thing about the book of Psalms is this. It's also one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's, in my opinion, one of the most honest and one of the most real books of the Bible because it has that human emotion behind it. Because it's human beings writing down their words, writing down their prayers to God, and you see a lot of stuff that unfolds throughout, throughout the Psalms through these human emotions. It runs the entire gamut of what it means to be a human being. We see praise and worship. A lot of the Psalms focus on the worship of God, and of course they're praising God. But you see a lot of other stuff too. You see things like people lamenting, people expressing sorrow, people who are even doubting, and people who are questioning God. God forbid. We see people expressing anger. We see people... Uh, praying to God even to do some pretty heinous and pretty atrocious stuff to their enemies a lot of times. But that's, how, that's what makes Psalms, to my opinion, so cool, is because it is about us a lot. It tells us that it's okay. This is one of the messages, primary messages that I get out of the Psalms anyway. It tells us that it's okay to reveal my humanity to God, that God can handle whatever I've got to throw at it. We've got an entire book of the Bible that shows us that. It's devoted solely to these very, very human prayers, these very, very emotional prayers. I think that's one of the primary messages that we're supposed to receive from Psalms. God can handle our thoughts. God can handle our emotions. We don't have to be perfect to approach God. I hear this, I heard this so much growing up. You need to get your life together and go to God. No, it's exactly the opposite. You need to go to God and let him get your life together for you. We don't have to be perfect to approach God. And the book of Psalms shows us that. It shows us that because it was written by some pretty doggone imperfect people. It's okay to cry out for God from time to time. It's okay, it's okay yeah. It's okay to even question God from time to time. He can handle our questions. He can handle our doubt even. He can handle our fears. He can handle our anger. All of these things that we bring to him in our human condition, he can handle all of that. And Psalm shows us this. The important thing that we gather from all of this is that we simply go to him. 
No matter what we're experiencing, no matter what doubts we're having, no matter what anger we're having, what moral confusion we're having, what matters is that we just keep going to God. He can take it. He can handle it. Keep going to Him. Keep returning to Him. And I want to give you guys a freebie um, this morning regarding prayer in general. And, I, and this was not part of my original sermon, uh, but I, just, I thought of it yesterday as I, was, as I was reviewing my notes. And it's actually something I wanted to mention last week. But while we're on the subject of prayer, being that Psalms is an entire book of prayers, I want to give you one thought, and I want, this to, uh, I want you to kind of take this in, and I want you to, to, uh, to work on this in your minds and in your hearts. We'll talk about it more in the future when, when, we, when we address prayer specifically as a theme. But we need to understand one thing about prayer. Prayer is a two-way conversation. Okay? Prayer is a two-way conversation. It's not just me talking at God. As good as that is, and of course as much as that is a part of prayer, it's not me just confessing. It's not me just repenting. It's just not me asking God for stuff. We've got an obligation. We've got a duty to listen to Him too. And I can't tell you how to do that, but we can do it, and we should do that. Prayer is a two-way street. Prayer is about, and this is something, again, we learn from, from Psalms, and I say all this to say this. Prayer and learning to listen to God in that still, small voice that the Bible talks about, at the end of the day, no matter how we approach God, no matter how many requests we make to God, no matter how many intercessions we make to God on the behalf of others, at the end of the day, prayer is about learning to conform my will to the will of God as opposed to trying to conform God's will to the mine. Does that make sense? I think a lot of us oftentimes we go to prayer and we just we go to God in prayer and we just want what we want. And again, that's okay. It's okay to express ourselves in prayer. But at the end of the day, it's about learning to conform my will, what I want, to what God wants, and not the other way around. Today's prayer is really, really cool because... Um, it's all about the idea of confession. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. And no, I'm not, I'm not sadistic. It's just a favorite topic of mine. Today's prayer is about a person who is in absolute anguish over his sins. Absolute anguish over his sins. And he's just, he's just sitting there and he's pouring his heart out to God in repentance. He recognizes some things. He, he acknowledges that, yes, God has the right to judge me. And he pleads for forgiveness. And he pleads for deliverance. He asks God to purify him. And he asks, basically, conform me to your will. Purify me. Cleanse me. Kevin read the first couple of verses during the interlude of one of those songs earlier. We'll talk a little bit about more of the details um, of what's behind this prayer after we read the scriptures. But it comes from Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is a little bit longer than what we're going to go through. We're just going to read... Verses 1 through 12 initially. So Psalm 51, 1 through 12. You can follow along on the, uh, on the screen or if, you, or if you have your Bible, feel free to do, to do so that way. Starting at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. 
My sin is always before me. There's his confession. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be water, whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's the word of God for the people of God. So if you're not aware, or if you haven't figured it out by now, this portion of scripture is a prayer by David. Uh, this is a prayer that's attributed to David. Most of us in the church, we generally view David in a good light, right? We know that in multiple places, the Bible refers to David as, as a man after God's own heart. But David was not perfect. As a matter of fact, to say that David was not perfect would be a gross, gross understatement. Some of y'all probably remember this story. We find it back in 2 Samuel. We learn that David met and lusted after a woman by the name of Bathsheba. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he impregnated her. Not only did he commit adultery with her, impregnate her, but he also indirectly murdered her husband. Y'all remember that story? Yeah, his, name was, his name was Uriah. Uriah was a, was a soldier. David told the commander to send Uriah out into, the, out into the forefronts of battle where the fighting is the worst, and when you get there, leave him so he can die. So David killed, not only did David commit adultery with Bathsheba, he essentially killed and murdered her husband. And he eventually wound up, wound up marrying her. We also read in 2 Samuel that uh, a prophet by the name of Nathan confronts David about this. He confronts David about his sin which is where we land in Psalm 51. So David's lamenting, he's confessing, he's repenting, he's pouring out his heart to God and asking him to cleanse his spirit. Psalm 51 is a prime, prime model for the art, for the discipline, or the practice of confession for us today, just as it was back then. David throws himself at the mercy of God. He takes full responsibility for what he's done. That's very, very important. Notice the words early on in those scriptures. Against you and you only have I sinned. My transgressions. He takes full responsibility for the atrocities he committed. He doesn't downplay his actions. He doesn't try to blame anybody else for his actions. It's all on me, God. It's all on me. And of course, we all know that David eventually experiences redemption. Uh, there is some judgment that occurs, but he's, he's, he's redeemed, and the grace of God shines through. At the end of that prayer, he prays what? Deliver me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Save me. Restore me. Conform me to your will. But again, the primary theme that we draw out of Psalm 51 is the idea or the practice of confession. 
What we don't talk a lot about in the church, though, is that confession is not just something that we practice before God. Confession is not just something that the Bible points us to as solely something that we do before God and before God only. We can find throughout Scripture multiple, multiple, multiple areas where we are directed, where we're admonished to confess our sins to other people. To confess our sins to other people. As a matter of fact, David, David does that. He doesn't do it in Psalm 51, but over back in 2 Samuel, he confesses his sins to Nathan when he's confronted by him. He fessed up. <laughs> so considering that, and we'll, well, I'm going to talk about one more scripture here in a second that points us to that. Consider the fact that the Bible directs us, and we all know this. This is nothing new. We don't talk about it a whole lot, but considering the fact that the Bible directs us to practice the discipline, or I call it an art, of confession to other people. Number one, why don't we do that? Number two, why do we find it easier to confess our sins to God Almighty than we do a human being? Shouldn't that be exactly the opposite? Shouldn't it embarrass us a little bit more to have to confess our sins to our Creator than it is a person? Yet it's not. We'll hide, we'll hide with all we got to protect ourselves from somebody knowing what our thoughts and good Lord, our misdeeds might be. But we don't mind taking it to God. We kind of we hardly we hardly flinch when we when we confess our sins to God. That's just that's kind of that's kind of strange to me. It's kind of strange, but yet we do it. It's a gift. Confession is a gift, and that's really what I want to talk about. Just for a couple more minutes. Confession is a gift. It's a gift that God gives us as a practice that offers us rest restoration and it offers us healing. It's, again, like we talked about um, accountability last week. It's not a bad thing. Confession is a good thing because through the gift of confession, we are, we are given the possibility of healing and restoration and, and, and uh, conformity into the will of God. But it's this gift that we fail more often than not to use because of two things. Number one thing being pride. It's our pride. If I want to say the greatest, one of the greatest sins in the world that prohibits us from spiritual growth and loving God and neighbor, it's our pride. We got too much pride to say that I ain't perfect. Or and or fear. Fear of what somebody's going to think about me. Fear of what somebody might say about me. Those are the two things that prohibit us the most from embracing this beautiful gift that God has given us, whereby we can experience our own healing and our own restoration. One of my, fav one of my favorite verses on the idea of, of confessing our sins to, to another human being, to people, comes from the book of James. And I told you guys this several weeks ago when, when we talked about James is that that's again one of my favorite books because James is James is uh, James is number one. He's the half brother of Jesus, so I tend to think that he knows what he's talking about. He grew up with Christ. There was a period of time in his life where he certainly did not believe that Christ was who he said he was. But he but he, something happened. Something happened to James, and he turned around and he came to know Christ as a savior, Lord. And he eventually wound up leading the largest church in Jerusalem, Christian church in Jerusalem. So I think that James has the tendency to know what he's talking about. Number two, James is. Kind of rough on us. 
not rough, but he's honest. He's honest with us. So when he talks about confession in the fifth chapter of James, verse 5, 16, he writes these words. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This are his directives to the church he's writing to. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. He doesn't just give us a directive, confess your sins and pray for each other. He tells you what's going to happen so that you may be healed. Here's what's going to happen if and when you do engage in this practice so that you may be healed. Here's the entire context of that, by the way, um, of what's going on, specifically what he's addressing, what he's saying to the church there. Uh, James 5, 13 through 16 in its entirety reads this. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. And it is effective. God gives us this gift of confession to one another, to other people, specifically for healing. Specifically for healing. Do we believe this today, church? If you thought your brother or sister might get healed physically, spiritually, would you pray for them? Would you confess your sins to them? God gives us this gift. He gives us this gift of confession so that we may experience healing. Sometimes that healing is spiritual. Sometimes, yes, that healing is physical. And I believe in that. Y'all can call me crazy if you want to. I've seen too many things. I've experienced too many things over the years regarding the miracles that can occur with physical healing when the body of Christ gets together and they pray for people. I'm going off... I'm about, I'm about to run down a rabbit hole that I didn't intend to, that I did not intend to run down. What I want you to know is that God, Jesus, James gives us these directives for a purpose, for our good, for his grace and his mercy. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. I have come over the years to appreciate so much the practice of confession. I don't do it all the time. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and tell you that I confess every, every, every wrong thought that I have, every moment of anger, every moment of frustration. I don't. However, at the same time, I have greatly come to embrace the practice of confession as a means of healing and as a means of, of restoration in my life. However, <laughs> now, now, we're gonna, now I'm going to tell you some stories. Confessing our sins, you know, it's... Ever since I can remember, as far as the idea of confession goes, and I grew up in Baptist churches, um, we were never taught the idea of actually confessing our sins to another person. Even though it's, you know, Scripture is rife with this idea. Confession was something merely between you and God. You know, coming to the altar and asking for confession of your sins, laying in bed, confessing your sins, that was simply restricted to whatever, to you and God. We were never taught that. You know, everybody thought that was a Catholic thing. It's not a Catholic thing. It's a Christian thing all day long, but it just wasn't something that was taught to me, and I don't know about what your experience is, uh, 
but it's clear throughout Scripture. And y'all know I like to talk about historical Methodism. It was clear in historical Methodism. It was a practice. I believe that's one of the reasons that we grew the way that we did. Confessing our sins is a common, commanded Christian practice. But I didn't learn that from the church initially. I know that it's part of the church now, but that ain't where I learned it initially. I've told you guys before um, that I have been part, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of years. That's where I learned the idea of confession, was through Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs, because confession is a hallmark of these organizations. You can't get through the 12 steps of these organizations without practicing the discipline of confession and practicing it often. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, let me tell you this. Step five, there's 12 steps. Step five says this. It says that we admit to God, we admit to ourselves, and we admit to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now let's be honest. Most of us would not dare disclose the innermost sins of our heart with another person, but this is a hallmark of 12-step programs. As a matter of fact, most people who actually... Y'all know that I've talked to you about... about um, taking an inventory of ourselves, a spiritual inventory of ourselves daily, daily if possible. That's the step that precedes step five, by the way. You actually sit down with your own thoughts and you think about your own sins. They don't call them sins in AA, but... Think about your own sin, your own shortcomings, every evil deed you've ever done, every, everything, that, everything that you can think of throughout your history that has brought you to the point where you are. You write all that stuff down. And then step five says you, we confess our sins to somebody else, to God, ourselves, and to another human being. All that stuff that we wrote down, all that bad stuff, we bring it to another human being. And here's the kicker. Here's the catch. Every person that I have ever known in my life who has honestly taken that step will tell you that it was one of the most miraculous events of their sobriety because they're relieved. They are relieved of the pressure. They are relieved of all this junk that they've been carrying on in their lives for so, so many years. They're also relieved to know that we're not a whole lot different from one another, by the way. That's a relief to them. And it opens them up. It opened me up. It opens them up to be able to be spiritually receptive. But it doesn't stop there. They keep on. Step 10 says that we continue to take spiritual inventory. When we're wrong, we promptly admitted it. It's about a lifelong, of con lifelong journey of confession. And here's the thing. It's no wonder that it works so well. AA's been around for a century, over a century. It's no wonder that it works so well because guess what? It was biblically based. It's a secular organization now, but Alcoholics Anonymous, the original first 12-step program, was an offshoot of something that was called the Oxford Groups. The Oxford Groups was an evangelical organization that recruited alcoholics, people struggling with other things, and two of their main tenets were confession and restitution to people who these folks had hurt or harmed. That's how the whole thing got started. The early people of AA were part of these groups called the Oxford Groups, and they took what they learned and they made that program. So no wonder it works, no wonder it has worked, as long as it has. 
And confession is a huge, huge, huge part of that. What does this look like practically? I know we got communion, guys. I know. <clears throat> what does this look like from a practical standpoint? What can happen if I learn, if I, if I am able to confess my sins to other people? I'm going to tell you a personal story. It's a very, very personal story. A number of years ago, my wife and I were on the verge of divorce. <clears throat> Our marriage was not good. Our marriage was on the rocks. To say that would be another gross understatement. We were both doing things we shouldn't do, and we were both treating each other pretty awfully, pretty horribly. At the same time, we knew that something was there. We knew something was there. Okay? And we weren't ready to let go of that. We, weren't, we were holding on by a thread, but we didn't want to let go. Both of us have been involved in AA. This, was, this, would, this would have been before I really had any, any, any real solid grounding in Christian orthodoxy. But we took that, and we said, okay, we got one last chance. What are we going to do with it? We're going to find somebody that we can talk to. We're going to find somebody that we can both agree with and both agree on that we can talk to, that we can sit down with, and we're going to lay all of our junk out. And we're going to be honest, and we're going to confess whatever nonsense is going on in our marriage and in our home. And that's exactly what we did. We found a pastor that we were both comfortable talking to, and we sat down in that dude's office, and we let him have it. Every bad thing that was going on in our house, he knew about it. Every fight that we were engaging in, the substance of every fight that we were engaging in, the status of our home, the way we treated each other, the things that we said to each other, every bit of that we confessed and it came out in that man's office. I can't tell you what happened in that pastor's office this, that day, but I can tell you God reached down and he touched us at that very moment. And I can't tell you that it was easy in the, in the next coming months. Well, actually, that's a lie. I think I can say that it was pretty doggone easy. God entered our lives at that time. God interceded. And I have no other thing to point to other than we just got down and we got honest with somebody. It's one thing to confess my sins to, some, to, to God. It's, it's another thing to confess them to somebody else. And I think God entered that room. I, think, I, I can't tell you what that pastor even told us that day. I couldn't tell you a word that he said, but something happened in that man's office, and it was instantaneous, and we haven't had those problems since then. We don't fight. Believe it or not, we don't. It is a rare, rare occur occurrence in our home when we ever have harsh words. And I take that all the way back to that one day in that man's office where we did something that we learned to do, where we practiced the art of confession, and God reached down, and he restored that marriage, and he restored that relationship, and he restored that home simply because of our willingness, our submissiveness to him to sit down and lay our crap out to somebody else. Forgive me for saying crap. Because God, here's the good news, folks. God is a God of grace and mercy. Most of us today, I hope, are not caught up in the kind of sins that, that David was that we read about in 2 Samuel. Most of us, <clears throat> you know, aren't caught up in those types of things. But we have to know that if God wanted... And if he did restore King David, my gosh, does he not want the same thing for us? Certainly, certainly he does. He can. 
And he will because that's the grace and the mercy of God. It doesn't matter what we've done. God is simply waiting for us to come to him with open arms and to incorporate some of these very, very simple directives into our lives. One of them being confession. That's why we've got one another. Of course we confess to God, but we've also got one another to experience that healing too. That's the good news is that God is a God of grace and he wants to restore us. He wants to have that relationship with us. He wants to bring us into that conformity. He wants us to have the life that Jesus promises us. He's just waiting on us. He's just waiting on us.